Hey, it's Brian, and this is a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. What's that mean? Well, it means we crack open a cold one and pull up an old episode, put it back at the top of the feed because it pertains to something we've been talking about on the show recently. And in this case, it pertains to grunge and to Pearl Jam. If you listen to our recent episode about Seattle versus grunge, we talked about a period in which Mike McCready started Mad Season. Well, he went to rehab, and then he started Mad Season. This is all during the Vitology sessions. And we mentioned in that episode that at that same time is when Pearl Jam is dealing with the Ticketmaster stuff. If you're not sure what that is, if you've heard this episode but sort of forget the details, it's your chance to revisit with us. Go all the way back to episode 63 of this show, uh, where we talked about Pearl Jam versus Ticketmaster and get all the details. Here you go. It's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories Retold. The entity I'd like to discuss today is a common nemesis to almost all music lovers, and specifically live music lovers, regardless of genre or taste. Whether you want to be in the same room with, I don't know, Josh Groban, or if you want to be bled on by Guar, you're going to have to grapple with these guys. And I am, of course, talking about. I got it. Smash Mouth. Smash Mouth. No, Ticketmaster. I'm talking about <laughs> Ticketmaster. Oh, man. I, okay. Okay, before we get to Ticketmaster, tell me about your first concert ticket. Do you remember buying your first concert ticket? Um, Like the first ticket that I purchased? Yeah, yeah. I know your sister took you to shows. Yeah. But what, what about uh, you? How about Murdoch going to the box office? Or, or, and walk us through the experience. Like, what did you have to do to buy this ticket? Sure. Um... Uh, I'm going to have to pick one and then try to figure out. Sure. Um, I mean, I bought shows to go to see things in clubs, so that was different. But once I had to do the thing with the ticket stub, right, um, this is the thing. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. But this is something that I don't know that you ever had to do, Brian. So um, I would either have to go to a record store and purchase them at a counter right. or go or go to a a a grocery store yep or a department or store or a department store wherever they had a ticketmaster uh outlet there there's uh, there's a young thing. person listening right now like an under i mean really probably all the way up to like 40ish who's like has no idea what we're talking about right now right 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 i know and you had to get physical tickets and you got your physical tickets. So do you remember the first time you had to use Ticketmaster? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember having Lollapalooza tickets that were, that were Ticketmaster and that's like 93, yeah. 94. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. A, so that, that's where we're headed. We're headed to 93, 94 Ticketmaster <laughs> though was founded in Phoenix, Arizona several decades before that 1976 by this group of dudes who had this very unique skill combo. There was this guy named Peter, and Peter was a computer programmer. And this is the 70s, so that means something very different than it does right now when we say somebody's a computer programmer. Yeah, this, this, right? dude's like, this dude's like a scientist. And then there's a guy named Al Leffler. And Al Leffler had box office experience. He knew how to sell tickets, basically. Um, and, and so they have a few other partners, and they create these ticket systems that included computer tech in, in the process. And so there was licensing for software, and then there was like actual hardware they had to sell to people. So... Do you have any idea what act holds the title of being the first band to play the first Ticketmaster ticketed concert? Have you, I mean, this is just fun trivia. I did, like, there's no reason you would know this. So if we go back 76 76. Um, Doobie Brothers. Yeah, that's not a terrible, terrible guess. But it was uh, not Doobie oh, Brothers. ELO. It was ELO. Yeah. Yeah, baby. I wonder how Jeff Lynne feels about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? I didn't, in all of this, ever hear a, a, or read a think piece where someone asked him. Because I would like to know that if he was just like, oh, my God, look what I unleashed. Or if he even realizes that he holds that title. Um, but, yeah, so that's the that's the first band to play a Ticketmaster show. Um, and it happened at the University of New Mexico. But... Before we go much farther with this, it does feel important to stop down and remind ourselves in a little more detail of the process that you just laid out about what it was like to buy tickets before something like Ticketmaster existed. 
Now, I don't remember this part. I want to know if you've ever done this. Giant Tours, back in the day, would actually do a mail-order lottery system. Did you ever partake in one of these? I didn't, but I worked at a record store where this all was happening. So you'd I, explain to me if this is correct. You'd send in a money order in a return envelope, mm-hmm. and then you would just go wait by the mailbox <laughs> and see if you were one of the lucky few. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I, I didn't do that, but the reason I know about it is that we had a Ticketmaster terminal, and so we would have questions about all of those things. I do recall that. Boy, I've got a Ticketmaster story. Okay, oh my okay, we're, we'll we'll make Wait. time. We'll make time for that. Uh, all right. But to to go back to this thing of how you bought tickets before Ticketmaster, let's just say that ELO show was pre Ticketmaster. And you were trying to figure out how to get tickets to that, and it was at the University of New Mexico. It means you probably drove to the student center at the University of New Mexico, or you went to, like you said, to an area record store or maybe a department store or something that sold tickets. So there's this awesome 2015 article in the show notes by this guy named Scott Hudson, and he, in an effort to help explain what ticketing was like back in these days, tells this story of trying to buy Springsteen tickets for a Lincoln, Nebraska show in 1984. And Springsteen's Lincoln show was set up by the university, so they were handling all the ticket sales. So even though Ticketmaster was in existence, they were not using them. So the day before the tickets go on sale, Scott and his buddy make a four-hour drive to buy tickets. Keep in mind, the drive is not to attend the show. It is only to buy the tickets. They will have to return months later to go to the show. They show up at the university, and they find that the line to buy the tickets has completely taken over the entire campus. It's winding around buildings. It's winding around landmarks. There are almost 2,000 people in front of them. And it's October, and it's Nebraska, and the weather's gotten cold, and they didn't plan right, and they do not have the correct clothes on, and the sun goes down. So they're standing in line, and eventually he and his buddy take turns. Who's going to stand in line? Who's going to go to the car and get warm and take a nap? He writes in this article, quote, even with our position in line, we assumed we'd be back on the road within a couple hours after the tickets went on sale. So they get there the night before. They know they're going to have to camp out. Tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. We were wrong. The line moved at a snail's pace. The clock seemed to move even slower. At, as 10 o'clock, opening of the ticket counter turned to noon, then mid-afternoon without offering us any sight of our destination. Finally, around 5 or 6 o'clock, we make it to the building and quickly discovered why it was taking a full day to do what takes minutes now. Here, okay, and here he describes what's happening when they get there. So there were 10 or so clerks selling tickets, but their method was you would look at a picture of the venue floor. Yes. And you'd say, okay, how about section 102? And they would then stand up and go back to a filing cabinet that had the sections, and they'd open section 102 and see if there were any tickets. And if there weren't yeah. any tickets, they would come back up and say, there aren't any tickets in 102. And then you would go, okay, how about 104? And then they would wow. go back to the filing cabinet. Like, just think about that, right? That's mind-blowing to think yeah. about that. Um, Scott wraps up his reminiscing with this statement. The point of my story is simple. As much as I detest Ticketmaster, especially their convenience fees, I definitely don't want to go back to the days where I had to take a day or two off of work to acquire tickets. Yeah. <laughs> Fair right. Enough. Fair enough. Having so, to go and physically stand in line. It, it is good to remember that Ticketmaster was actually created to solve a problem, right? I mean, I think they, they become so hated that we sometimes think that they're only there to take our money in the worst way possible. But, I mean, they definitely did fix this issue. Um, but, you know, when you fix a problem, as is often the case, you create a lot of other problems. So... Let's back up even further for just a second and acknowledge that the guys who we introduced a moment ago who came together to create Ticketmaster were not actually the first people in this space. This was actually a booming space for innovation in the late 60s. I did not know any of this. There were several companies looking to make this work. One was called Ticketron. Mm -hmm. One was called CompuTicket. And one was called Ticket Reservations Systems. Now, ticket, ticket Reservations Systems, the, the most clunky of the names, started selling tickets in 67 at, to your point, department stores, Alexander's in New York and New Jersey. And they used a very early computer system that had terminal equipment that they called electronic box offices. Now, important to note here, even in this earliest of phases, TRS, 
ticket reservations systems was <laughs> right was charging some of the cost of the transaction back to the consumer. So this this was happening at the in sixty seven. Initially, 25 cents to the customer, 25 cents to the event, but then they gave 12 and a half of that cents back to the house, and yeah, who knows. And then later, they just moved to a straight 10% charge. And then they start putting these terminals in banks and in department stores. So they create this system because it's designed to ensure that if you pick a seat in 104, it can't be sold twice, right? So yeah, it's, it's that problem that 20 years later at the University of Nebraska, they're still dealing with. Now... The original Ticketron was based in New Jersey, and it trialed some computerized ticketing system stuff in 67, and it didn't work, so they folded the company, and then they put their name up for sale, and the guys at Ticket Reservation Systems were like, dear God, get us out of this name, and they bought the name Ticketron. So two of the three collapse into one thing. Uh, things at CompuTicket weren't working very well either. And they fold in 1970, so this leaves Ticketron as the sole computerized ticketing provider in the U.S. in 70. And like I said, in 76 is when we see Ticketmaster enter the fray. So they had the whole market until the dudes in Phoenix started screwing around and put that ELO show on sale. (laughs) So to just cut to the chase, these two companies compete for a while. And Ticketron actually has a lesser-known horse in the race. They're, they're not just doing it. At a certain point, they expand, and they're not just doing ticketing terminals. Uh, they're also doing the back-end infrastructure for some U.S. lotteries, which is interesting. Wow. There's a lot of money there just doing the operations. In 1990, they actually have 40% market share. But Ticketmaster has 50%. And this investment outfit called the Carlisle Group end up buying the business and the assets. And guess who they decide to sell most of that 40% of market share to? Uh, I don't know. Ticketmaster. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so suddenly you start to see where we're headed, right? Yeah, but, we're, yeah. but we're not just going to talk mergers and acquisitions. There is plenty of those for the next 20 years after this. And eventually a company that owns venues gets involved and makes the whole thing even stickier. We're, we're not really going to spend a lot of time on that. And, and I worked... For that company. You did work for that company. We've not revealed your nefarious past on this show, Murdoch. You did work for them. And I've got a great story for that whenever you want. I will say I was interested in working for them at one point. There was a job open, and I I didn't end up... uh, My good friend Danielle, who you know, of course, uh, almost took a job with that company, did not end up taking a job with that company. But hey, we've all thought about it. Um, I remember a buddy of mine who who I eventually I, the job that was up for grabs was his when he had that job he called me or told me about calling his mom from a one of their conferences and at the conference they're like doing conference stuff like you would at a corporate conference and then Pharrell comes out and he's just like walking around the tables and singing and taking selfies with people and so he like is calling his mom and Pharrell is on the other line so it's tempting it's tempting I'm just saying when you control everything as you will soon find out in this story it gets very tempting because there is some fruit right we've all seen this in in the when we talk about villains that's always the thing that brings people to the the dark side right it's the perks anyway uh so what we're really going to focus our attention on today is something that happens after this merging uh because the ascendance and removal of competition makes ticketmaster what we might refer to as a Goliath. Do you, would, I, I always wonder this when I drop biblical references. Do you know the story of Goliath? Do you know who that is biblically? I, I know that he and David fought for the Intercontinental Championship belt <laughs> somewhere in the Bible. MMA. And it, it was MMA. And it, it might have been WrestleMania three. I didn't know if it was <laughs> MMA. It seems like that was a really before MMA. So, so Goliath's really big, David's really small, etc. You right? got it. You got it. You got it. That's great. That's great. Okay, so I, it's so funny because every once in a while I hear things like that, and I'm like, they're so second nature in the back of my brain, right? Grew up a preacher's kid, know all these biblical references without even thinking about how they've been saturated into American culture. And then I'll say something like that. And I'm like, I wonder if he even has any idea who Goliath is. Is this like when people say Gilgamesh and you just like, are kind of like, I think I read that once. Um, okay. I don't so know what that is. If you have Goliath, as you have already pointed out, you have to have a David. So Goliath is the big guy. That's Ticketmaster. And our David in this story 
is actually there is a Dave in this story, but he's the least famous and he gets replaced. Uh, our, our, our David is actually filled collectively. You might say there are Davids, it, and, and their real names are Eddie, Stone, Jeff, Mike, and, and at the time their drummer is Dave. You probably know them better under one moniker, which is Pearl Jam. The show is brought to you in part today by DB, a Scandinavian brand making backpacks and bags to help people on the move like you stay ready for anything. If you're on the streets, if you're on the peaks, their travel-tested gear has been used by athletes, adventurers, creators, all sorts of folks, so why wouldn't you use it, right? Over the past decade, they've designed and developed and released and refined some of the best bags on the market, and they've got the cool patented hookup system check it out and get 10% off when you hit the show notes 10% off on your next purchase by using the code pod 10 or going to the link in our show notes now back to the show pearl jam is a band with quite a backstory we touched on this a little bit in our recent bonus episode concerning the 30th anniversary of their album 10 but it's a really fascinating backstory because they're made up of a bunch of remnants of other bands. Oh, yeah. Green River. That's a really good one. Uh, yeah. So Stone Gossard and Jeff Amit, uh, Amant are members of a grunge band called Green River. And I they listened were... to some Green River. I'm not going to play Green River because I thought it was pretty terrible. It, yeah. It, it's real sludgy. And that came from Mother Love Bone. Well, uh, actually, close enough. Is it, or is it backwards? It, you're, you're backwards, right. So Green River first. And then oh. they break up in 87 because the other two guys didn't get along. So Jeff and Stone are like, they're like Brian and Murdoch. They're like totally in it to win it. So they start playing music with a guy named Andrew Wood. And he had this band called Malfunction, which is spelled yeah. M-A-L-F-U-N-K, Funk Shun. Malfunction, yeah. I have them backwards based on my introduction, which is funny because I got introduced to Green River <laughs> very late. Like after Pearl Jam's 10 came out. Oh, sure. And, and so that turns into, as you've already said, that turns into Mother Love Bone. And so they tour, they record this record. Everybody's freaking out about how badass Mother Love Bone's going to be. Polygram gets on board. They are ready to put out a debut album called Apple in July of 1990. And four months before that happens, Andrew Wood overdoses on heroin and dies. So this is all part of this lore. When we talk about the lore behind bands and songs, this is like Pearl Jam lore. These two dudes, Stone and Jeff, are devastated. I mean, they've lost a buddy. They've lost a business partner. And, I mean, the carpet keeps getting yanked out from under these dudes, right? So Stone channels this energy into writing heavier stuff, loud stuff. And he starts practicing with this guy who was in another band called Shadow. And they had just broken up. And his name's Mike McCready. And then they bring Jeff back into the fold because, like I said, they're like the Brian and Murdoch of this story. Can't, can't, can't do it without you, bro. They record a demo as a trio, and then they are like, we need a drummer, we need a singer. And so basically just to skip to the good stuff and not tell all the details about how they called this guy who was playing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and he called this other guy named Eddie, the demo gets to a singer in San Diego who's been in another band. So there's only like five bands involved here, and that band was called Bad Radio. And that, of course, is Eddie Vedder. And so, like I said, remnants. I mention this because this means these dudes are lifers, right? They've all been working hard to make a career in music, and it's just not sparked yet. So what I'm about to describe happens really fast when you tell it from the starting point of Pearl Jam. But yeah. you have to understand that there's all of this other stuff that's happened leading up to Pearl Jam happening. So these guys are like veterans at this point. They're not... Even though they're pretty young, they're not new to this musical game at all. And think and think about the amount of time that they had spent doing this and how it was probably unfathomable, the amount of success that they would get, that they probably just wanted to be as famous as, as Mudhoney. Right, Argu right, 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 right. Oh, arguably, yeah. arguably the best grunge band ever that people will argue with me about, but so it's fine. They call themselves Mookie Blaylock. 
This yeah. is another part of the lore. After the basketball player, they play show number one in Seattle with this, you know, these guys they know from Seattle who are in a band called Alice in Chains. That's in December of 90. And then they get to stay on as a tour opener. So this is part of the reason it happens fast, too, right? Because eyes are on Seattle. There's a bunch of guys who are getting a shot. And so they very quickly get, they get a spot, you know, in the lineup. They, they end up getting a deal at Epic Records. They change their name to Pearl Jam. Now, just to show you how fast the ascent of Pearl Jam happens from this point, there are two videos in the show notes. I'm not going to play either of them here, but I highly recommend you looking at them because they're really fun. One is from February of 1991. So I just told you their very first show was in December of 1990. So two months later, you can see footage of them playing in a club. They open with a song. I think one, uh, once is the second song. But they open with another song that I couldn't place. And it's like sort of slow at first. And it's like, I don't know why they were opening in a club with this song. So that happens in February of 91. Then the other video is from August 23rd of 91. Okay? So six months later. And this is significant because 10 comes out on August 27th. So four days after this video where they're playing like a Seattle Battle of the Bands in an mm, amphitheater. You know what video yeah. I'm talking about? I've seen that video, yeah. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And Eddie, and it's bas- like you also have to remember the technology because nobody's shooting this on a cell phone. So some guy's got a dang camcorder in the second it's row. A, yeah, and um, my friend Sean in the 90s, he shot, oh, I don't know, hundreds of shows, and he carried just a huge camcorder with him. Yeah, so you can see in these between these two videos, it's it's. I'm not gonna say it's a different band, but you can all of a sudden see like, oh, the polish is on. Song number two in August is "State of Love and Trust," which is maybe my favorite Pearl Jam song. Oh, me too. It really. Um, yeah, and I don't like that band that much. I know you don't you like know, that band that much, right? But I love that song, and it's because I saw. I saw singles. Yep, 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 yep. And that whole, we'll always go out dancing. Do you, like I'm, do you remember who Pearl Jam, what Pearl Jam's band name is in singles? They appear in the movie. They're Citizen Dick. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and that I happens get, early, too. Like, that's another thing I didn't realize. Yeah. That happens in 92. So most of what we're going to talk about happens between 91 and 95. So in a four-year period, they very quickly become one of the biggest bands in the world. And it's just, it's a little bit mind-boggling how quickly all this stuff happens. So they're tighter, they're brasher, they're more dynamic. And Pearl Jam has even said that they made 10 in their minds so that they could tour. Like, they're just road dogs. And they've been road dogs, and this is all they know. So 10 doesn't sell, like, immediately out of the gate. But it simmers. And by mid-92, it breaks through and it goes gold. So the buzz builds, and they get put into this national narrative about Seattle grunge that puts them next to Soundgarden and Nirvana and Alice in Chains, really where they still sit, and probably at the top of that list, maybe next to Nirvana, right? Yeah. And it's important to, to point out that even at this point, because of those other bands already being on the scene, diehards especially seattle scene diehards are not real happy about pearl jam and yeah i can imagine yeah. M- music magazines critics not super pumped about this band and i think that comes from this idea that they're trying too hard because like we they've been all knocked down countless times and now it just sort of feels desperate like they would do anything to make it i, I i'm not saying this is the case i'm just saying i think this is what happens right this is what those sort of disgruntled music industry types see when they look at this there's because there is this mythos that we sort of put around rock bands that they all have to be like anointed right they all have to have some sort of like magic fairy dust around them the next two years absolutely nuts for these guys so with that context let's consider the conflict that we've been teasing here and that is the giant shepherd boy showdown right this is the david and goliath thing the Shepherd Boys Showdown. <laughs> Coming up tonight at WrestleMania Four, the Shepherd Boys Showdown. You're the one that Eddie. already you already put this in the in the uh, in the ring, man. You you you're the one that set that up. Pearl Jam started to question Ticketmaster very early. So again, just to remind you, we are at ninety one. They put out ten in August. By May of ninety two, they have their first kerfluffle on record with Ticketmaster. 
And this is when 10 is starting to pick, pick up speed. Because remember I told you middle of 92 is when all of a sudden everybody's buying it. And they go back to Seattle to do two free shows. And they got to figure out how to ticket them. So they go to Ticketmaster. And they go, hey, we're going to do two free shows. And Ticketmaster says, cool. If we're going to distribute these tickets, though, we're going to charge the customer a dollar for processing. And on principle, the band says, like, no, 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 no. You can't call it free if it costs a dollar. So they distribute the tickets to those two shows themselves without Ticketmaster. Now, fast forward a year. For perspective, at the end of 93, when Versus comes out, it will sell more copies in its first week of release than all other entries in the Billboard Top 10 combined. Yeah. That's the head of Steam that's building right here. Yeah. I mean, when that record came out and uh, that was, it was, we were sold out. I mean, people came to buy that record. And you, could, you, could, you couldn't get it fast enough? Well, it was, people would return it. So we had used copies. <laughs> um, we'd sell those just as fast, too. I kind of felt like you kind of, at the time, you could be into all those bands, but like really, you could really be like a chili pepper. Is camp person or a Nirvana camp person? What's your What's your favorite Eagles. song on Versus? I don't know, man. <laughs> it's been like twenty years. I, since I'm a big fan it. of "Elderly Woman Behind the Counter in a Small Town." That's the song that everyone likes, right? But yeah, yeah I but I, I seem to recognize your face. It's just you just pretend you're eating oatmeal when yeah. you see that. Yeah. Um, and then, I, but I also like Dissident. Dissident's a good one. Glorified Cheetah that is one. good. Yeah, you know them. You know them to hear them. These songs are just ubiquitous. Uh, so, okay. In the lead up to this, PJ decides to tour. And they insist that their tickets should cost no more than $18. So if you want to go see Pearl Jam at the height of their powers after 10, it's costing you 18 bucks. I checked inflation here. And so in 2021, that ticket would cost roughly $35. So imagine any band. Uh, for instance, I actually did think about this, even though it's like not the same at all. Uh, Dawes is playing my favorite club in town in December, and those tickets are $35. And when they announced that, I was like, that seems incredibly cheap. Like, I, I can't even do the math on how they're making that work. So yeah. that's sort of the thing, right? Pearl Jam's going out. It's going to be 18 bucks. Promoters, not a fan. This becomes important to know for those who have not spent time in the concert industry like me and you and potentially our friend Karen who wrote the show who, who knows what we're talking about when we speak of radio. Um, it, so all this crap works on percentages. So the less that you charge as the artist, the less that gets divided up for everybody else. So hmm. promoters think these tickets should be th – the advice they give Pearl Jam at the time, three times the price. Make them 60 bucks. <laughs> And to make it more controversial, and this is another thing, PJ won't inflate their merch. So this is another thing that gets divided up. People don't know this. You, you don't want to know. People go and they see the Smashing Pumpkins and the tickets are $40. Or the, not the tickets. The tickets are $140. The t-shirts are $40. And you're like, why is this crappy Gildan t-shirt with a Smashing Pumpkins logo on at $40? And that's because all that stuff's got to get lifted up because the venue gets a cut. So if you're going to sell your stuff in there, there's like a big chunk of that money that's going to different people, right? So they get a percentage of the merch too. So Pearl Jam also says our merch is going to be like $18. So that's crazy to me too, that the, the tickets and the t-shirt are the same price. Um, so hey, fun question, fun question, real yeah. fun question. Uh -huh. Did you ever see Led Zeppelin's The Song Remains the Same? Mm -hmm. oh, do you remember the part where Peter Grant, the, the manager... It goes after the the guy that's selling the the you know the bootleg merch oh, like the yeah. bootlegs and and then and it looks like Peter Grant's going to be Peter Grant by the way ex professional wrestler was going <laughs> to beat the was going to beat the he was actually at the cage match of David and Goliath fun <laughs> he fact was, he was going to it looked like he was going to beat the shit out of him and then later you kind of hear that they actually had a conversation. Uh, about it, and it sort of sounded like they were going to work some some things out. But I can't imagine how 
um, like I left louder than life, the music festival that, that I went to for like 45 minutes and I must've walked like a hundred yards and there were dudes with just boxes and boxes of t-shirts. Really? Just fake ones? Like fake louder than life t-shirts? They were louder than life t-shirts. They weren't like a band specific t-shirt. And I just thought, man, this is, it's crazy. Like how people make fake ones or they fall off a truck or whatever. It's just... You know, so, they're so expensive. It's such a great like for a lot of people, they would be drawn to the bootleggers because the T-shirts are so expensive. My my only experience with bootleg T-shirts is right before they cut down on it. And I don't think this exists anymore, but it, I went on a school trip to Washington, D.C. when I was like 14 and Clinton was in the White House at the time. And I remember there were guys standing outside the White House with cardboard boxes selling T-shirts where they had made cartoons the one I bought and brought home to my parents was, I can't remember how much it cost. I think it was like eight bucks. And it was a cartoon of the Clintons as the Flintstones. And it was called the Clintstones. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, would, like, I didn't understand what I was buying. I just thought it was funny looking, right? Um, but that's whenever somebody says bootleg T-shirts and talks about this sort of concept, that that is what I think of as the Clintstones. That's really super funny. You know, the Clintons also, they invited Pearl Jam to the White House. Ah, yeah. Hey, look at you tying all this together. So early on, too. It's estimated that their decisions about ticket prices and merch prices cost Pearl Jam $2 million, left $2 million on the table for that tour. So to my point about percentages, all of this continues to build tension with Ticketmaster because their percentage is measly, right? If the ticket price is low. So we get to 1994 versus assessed sales records. And they're working on what's going to become Vitology. They're planning a summer tour. They want to keep prices low again. And this time, they even directly address the service fees on the tickets. And those service fees, we've kind of beat around this, but those are the extra charges that go straight to Ticketmaster. So that's when you see a, a ticket, and it's 100 bucks, and then you go to purchase it, and it's actually 120 bucks. There's a big chunk of that that Ticketmaster's taking. Right, and some of it the venue's taking, and some of it's about, there's all sorts of other things, but there is a big uh, outsized chunk that's going to Ticketmaster. So they say, listen, those fees won't be more than ten percent. Meaning, in this case, if you're if you're charging eighteen dollars for a ticket, Ticketmaster gets a dollar eighty. Now, the average service charge at the time in 1994 was four to eight dollars per ticket. So a dollar eighty is not cutting it for the Ticketmaster folks, right? Right. They're pissed. They refuse. So what's Pearl Jam's next move? They they go tell mom, right? In this case, mom is the U.S. Department of Justice. Oh, that's different. In May of 1994, the guys in Pearl Jam get with their lawyers and they write a memorandum and they address it to the Justice Department. And they allege the Ticketmaster exercised a monopoly over ticket distribution and used its market power to gouge consumers with excessive service fees. This causes the Justice Department to launch an investigation, and that investigation centers on Ticketmaster's practice of paying a portion of the service fee it collects back to the venue and promotion firm in exchange for exclusive contracts. I know that's a lot of mumbo jumbo but it basically means they're going and making deals and saying i mean it's sort of mob tactics right we'll cut you in here if you stick with us stick with the family so on june 30th 1994 jeff ammont wearing a backwards baseball cap and looking like a badass and stone gossard looking like a high school chemistry teacher actually get to testify in front of a subcommittee and This is an MTV News report. I'm going to play quite a bit of it from that week when this happens. And let's just real quickly shout out to Tabitha Soren. Tabitha Soren. (laughs) For sure. She is in this clip, and uh, it makes me happy. So here we go. Pearl Jam played Capitol Hill on Thursday as guitarist Stone Gossard and bassist Jeff Ammett were at the House of Representatives to begin three hours of testimony about Ticketmaster, the giant sports and concert ticket agency. A House subcommittee spurred by a complaint Pearl Jam recently filed with the U.S. Justice Department is looking into the way tickets are priced and sold for concerts, sporting events, and other shows. 
Pearl Jam has accused Ticketmaster of being a monopoly and of using its power to scuttle a summer tour the band had planned with tickets to sell for a relatively low $18. Ticketmaster's chief, buttressed by representatives of the Los Angeles Forum and New Jersey's Giants Stadium, was at the hearing to proclaim his company's innocence. Pearl Jam was supported by representatives of REM and Aerosmith, whose manager left no doubt that more than one band is unhappy with Ticketmaster. All the members of Pearl Jam remember what it's like to be young and not have a lot of money. Many Pearl Jam fans are teenagers who do not have the money to pay $30 or more that it's often charged for tickets today. It is well known in our industry that some portion of the service charges Ticketmaster collects on its sale of tickets is distributed back to the promoters in the venues. It is this incestuous relationship and the lack of any national competition for Ticketmaster that has created the situation we're dealing with today. As a result, our band, which is concerned about keeping the price of its tickets low, will almost always be in conflict with Ticketmaster, which has every incentive to try to find ways to increase the price of the ticket it sells. Have you heard from, from other performers on this issue? Are there other bands who are concerned about this? And if so, or, or individual performers, could you share that with us? I think, um, I think mainly Kelly uh, Curtis, our manager, has been talking to a lot of different people. I know we've gotten a lot of support from Aerosmith and Grateful Dead and uh, Garth Brooks and uh, R.E.M. Young. Neil Young. Last week, I was with Aerosmith in Italy, where the band is currently... This is Tim Collins talking. He's Aerosmith's manager. Master ...and how it relates to our concert business. Steven Tyler, Aerosmith's lead singer, said to me, Mussolini may have made the trains run on time, but not everyone could get a seat on that train. That's the problem that Aerosmith and I have with Ticketmaster. Yes, they have an efficient and profitable system, but its monopolistic aspects are unfair and hurtful. Various promoters went to the group and spoke. We, we had no... Now, this is Fred Rosen, the CEO of Ticketmaster. ...we would compromise in this area and that we would lower the service charge to two and a quarter or 250, depending on the area. And the fact is that if the word compromise had been used, which is something that this great institution is built on, that's what Congress is built on, that's the way legislatures make things work, is by compromise, this problem might not have arisen to the level that it's on today. I mean, first of all, that guy, Fred Rosen, like he basically just says, listen, they wouldn't meet me in the middle. So I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> um, but do you, rem do you remember when this happened? Do you have any yeah, memory of this? I do. I don't remember the hearings as much, but I remember when basically it was Pearl Jam um, had basically said they were a monopoly. Well, when I saw the footage, I immediately recognized it. Like I was like, oh, I remember in 1994 somehow seeing this as an 11-year-old in this picture of Jeff and Stone in the courtroom has become sort of legendary. And it's two rock stars. Well, one guy that looks like a rock star, the other guy that doesn't, uh, which is so funny because Stone Gossard has such a rock star name and does not look like a rock star uh, in a room full of squares because all the other bands, as we pointed out in that clip, sent their lawyers and their managers. And it, it is bringing attention to this issue at a major scale because this has been going on at this point in history. Ticketmaster had just been dealing with some legal business in New York over similar complaints, but with people who weren't famous. And so you didn't hear about it as much. So Pearl Jam's using their platform. It actually gets so intense. Pearl Jam cancels their tour in 94, which yeah. again costs them somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 million. So the fall comes and this investigation is ongoing, and the band releases Vitology. And that becomes the second fastest CD selling, fastest selling CD in history. 877,000 units sold its first week. And it is at this point that Pearl Jam decided to take a gamble. They're one of the biggest bands in the world, and if they really want to use this platform and fight for the people, beyond even going to Congress, what else can they do? They can go on a tour and have free shows with Cypress Hill and Limp Biscuit, with like the chain link fence in front of them. That's what they could have done, but they didn't do that. Well, they do try to launch a 1995 tour without Ticketmaster to prove a point. And there's a great article by Ed Power from 2019 that he wrote for The Independent in Britain, where he describes in 1995 the scene of Eddie Vedder taking a phone call with a porta potty company. This is from that piece. 
quote, boycotting soon devolved into a waking nightmare in which Pearl Jam had to personally handle the excruciating minutia of putting on a live concert. Particularly undesirable was the nightmare of having to organize the toilets. And this is Eddie Vedder. Quote, we were having week-long meetings about chain-link fences and porta-potties. It turns out that Pearl Jam made a major miscalculation. When they started kicking up dust, they made a presumption. And their presumption was, everybody that is a touring artist is going to join us. And that did not happen. Mm. Now, as we've pointed out, it's true that some of the bands sent their lawyers. And it is hilarious. Like, go watch that footage because it'll be like, here's these two young guys, one of them clearly in a rock band. And then old square looking lawyer who looks like, even though it's 94, it looks like 84 when this guy talks. Um, but the, so there's lawyers and managers on Capitol Hill with them, but none of these bands draw the line in the sand that had them booking their own tour and hiring their own fencing companies. Right. For instance, REM's lawyer goes to the hearing, but Michael Stipe and company do their 1995 monster tour through Ticketmaster. And Ticketmaster charges six fifty to book a forty dollars ticket. Yeah, ninety four. I saw that tour, so I've definitely paid that six fifty Ticketmaster to see them at Thompson Bowling Arena in Knoxville. That Ed, happened. Eddie Vedder told Ed Power in two thousand nine there were other people who had opportunities to join in. Instead, they actually cut deals with that company. And these were people I feel who could have afforded to make a stand with us. And Jeff Ammond is quoted as saying, we were so hard headed about the 1995 tour. We just had to prove that we could tour on our own and it pretty much killed us. So what follows for them trying to execute this tour is horror story stuff. And some of it's just like terribly bad luck. They sched- they, they schedule a performance in front of 50,000 people at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. So think about this. They're, they have to get the chain link fence. They have to put it on the stage. They have to buy the porta-potties, all that. Several hours beforehand, after all of this work, Eddie Vedder's rushed to the hospital with food poisoning. And you, you might have heard about this show because he does go on stage, but he can't get through the set. So they do seven songs with him, and Neil Young is in the audience. Yeah. And he gets up and fills in for the rest of the set. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. that? Yeah, because after that then then they Neil Young put out that album, I think is the act is it the act of love, is that the name of it is? Uh, it's Neil it's Neil and then the and Pearl Jam's the backing band. And they can't credit Pearl Jam because of the contract. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's Vetter is so weak after this incident that they end up having to cancel the next five dates which is the bulk of that summer tour so a lot of it doesn't even happen and then in july of 95 so while this is going on this investigation's been happening right and there's not been an update and all of a sudden it just hits the news it just hits the la times that congress says they're done and so you can read the la times piece that announces this and the main thread of that story is like quote this ending just happened out of nowhere. <laughs> like we have no idea. Like all of a sudden it, it's to the point literally that there were people scheduled for interviews with the committee that got a call that canceled them the day before they announced it in the times. Huh? So this is from the LA times piece quote, justice department officials would not elaborate on the sparse announcement that the investigation was being dropped without action, but sources close to the case said economic analysts in the antitrust division believed it would be difficult to bring a case against Ticketmaster, primarily because venue owners and promoters willingly signed the exclusivity contracts. Indeed, the department met in March with attorneys representing a coalition of Ticketmaster clients who contended that because the arrangements were entered into freely by venue owners, like nobody held a gun to their head, it would be an infringement on their rights to challenge those agreements. So if they're happy getting a kickback, it's okay with us is basically the what happens. So. Yeah. What happens with Pearl Jam at this point? So David has gone out and swung at Goliath. He's thrown some stones, and he has made no progress. Goliath is alive and well. Pearl Jam insists on not playing in Ticketmaster venues, and they try other workarounds. There's other things where they like try to do some charity shows because 
the contracts with venues are different if it's a charity show sometimes, so you don't have to use Ticketmaster. But it basically means they don't really play in the U.S. for three years. <laughs> Eventually, they fold and they do business with Ticketmaster. If you're going to yeah. go see uh, Pearl Jam now, you're going to you're going to see them in a in a Ticketmaster related venue. Yeah. I'm sure. And I and I remember when that happened because as a you know not exactly the, a big fan or anything, I just remember realizing that they you know. They lost. They lost. I mean, this is this. There is no two ways to put it. They lost. They took on Ticketmaster and did not win. And meanwhile, what happens with Ticketmaster? Well, I won't bore you with all the details. But if you remember, to bring it back to the Suge Knight episode, remember at the end of the Suge Knight episode, I mentioned that you could just like if you really wanted to see what a ruckus Suge Knight is perpetually causing, just go to the controversies tab on his Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Same damn thing for Ticketmaster. Let's just say this fight with Pearl Jam was just one of the many, many, many fights. Here's a sampling, and I'm just I'm like going to read the head the heading from the Wikipedia page: Rewards Program Monthly Fees. Uh, in May 2013, Ticketmaster agreed to pay up to 23 million dollars for enrolling customers into a rewards program that charged nine dollars a month, and the customers didn't really realize they were in it. Yeah. Uh, secret scalping program. In September 2018, the Toronto Star reported that Ticketmaster was not enforcing ticket limit rules on its resale platform. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Because they're taking a cut there. Uh, data breach. In June 2018, Ticketmaster notified 40,000 British customers that it had identified a hack caused by malicious software. Um, I, in a similar note, uh, this is one of my favorites. Competitor computer hacking. In December of 2020, Ticketmaster entered into a plea agreement with federal prosecutors and agreed to pay a $10 million fine after being charged with illegally accessing computer systems of a competitor. Did you even hear about that? Because yeah, crazy. I heard, yeah, I heard about that. And then, did you hear about the Metallica Ticketmaster scandal? Hit me. So this was after the. Hardwired to self-destruct. That that record came out. Yeah. Which think about it, they've been touring on that record since 2017. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Isn't that, that crazy. Um, so a representative in Metallica's camp worked with Live Nation to put. It was a ton of tickets, like almost not a hundred thousand tickets, but near like up near six-figure tickets on the resale market. So. You know, what what they were finding was is that, you know, Metallica fans weren't going to be able to get tickets at a fair price because someone's actually getting them and reselling them back on the resale market. And then they're going they're they're above face value. And they really kind of buried that story as much as they could have. I mean, Metallica probably wanted to bury that story, too. Um, but, yeah, that sucks. Right. I, I wasn't even done. Deceptive pricing. This is another one. And this doesn't even mention Metallica, but it's the same sort of stuff. A class action lawsuit filed against Ticketmaster in 03, alleging it did not fully disclose UPS and order processing fees. And in June 2019, the Canadian Competition Bureau fined Ticketmaster 4.5 million Canadian dollars as part of a settlement after it was discovered that Ticketmaster, quote, topped advertised costs by more than 20%. And sometimes as much as 65%. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, this is the nature of the beast, I guess, when you're in a capitalism based society. I was going to tell you this one single Ticketmaster. Story. Oh, yeah. Take us home. So I was, uh, I worked at a record store and I never managed the, the Ticketmaster. Uh, terminal that was only operated by managers or key right, masters. Right. Right. Um, but I came in, I had to come in one morning for a sale, like a pre-sale, whatever on, uh, on sale. And it was um, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. So it was Plant and Page, the tour 95, I guess, 96, 90, whenever it was. Um, so there were people already had kind of come into the parking lot before we'd open who were waiting around. And then 
that was the whole thing. Like there was no one in the store to to do anything else. And we took cash, Brian. Yeah. So there was a large bag of cash <laughs> that someone had to take and put into a bag. And we didn't have like bank bags. There was just put in like had to someone had to go drop had to walk out of there with a bag full of however much cash that was and take it to a bank in the middle of work. That was a a thing. That was a thing that happened. It was so weird, but yeah, that's, that's when we used to, we previously would go and purchase them that way. It's that plant and page money, baby. That's good. Good grief. Uh, If you want to get involved in the show, we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to Karen, Chris, and all the folks who have written the show recently. We uh, really appreciate it. And also, you know, if you hit up iTunes or wherever you download the show from and leave us a review, uh, it it does good things. It it spreads the word, and we appreciate you taking the time to do that. Um, In the meantime, until we're able to get back together and do this again, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Yeah. Stories flow from my mouth like a butterfly. There. You made that even creepier. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.